Well, welcome to episode 60 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Larson, along with... Cricket Lou. Hello, everyone. We're back after a long time, <laughs> but here we are. And we have a special guest today. Uh, with us all the way from London, Ontario, is Joe Abley, the CTO of PIR. Hey, Joe. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Good. You're uh, you're making your triumphant return to the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Well, you know, I thought you needed some help, you know, so see if I can get your ratings up. <laughs> Excellent. We can use all the help. Yeah, this time have. I didn't have to arrange a DDoS on critical infrastructure before we talked, so <laughs> we'll see if this way works too. Excellent. Yeah, for, the, for those of you who don't remember, the last time Joe joined us, it was in the wake of the big DDoS attack against Dyn, and in, in at, at that time, you were uh, you had a different position, right? You were working for Dyn. I was. I was working for Dyn, um, and you know it was interesting actually because it's it's funny being back in the more conventional realm of what we used to call critical infrastructure. We did this at ICANN, you know, with the root servers and uh, .org. Of course, the org server is very important. But then we found out around that Dyn attack that the actual critical infrastructure that lots of people care about are not actually any of those things. They are things like Twitter, <laughs> and. Um, so it's interesting to have a different alignment <laughs> yeah. for the kinds of things that matter and the things that don't. But yeah, so now I'm at PIR again. Um, well, I say again, first time at PIR, but I've obviously been at Affiliast before. Two companies are close partners, so it's nice to be back with .org. So Joe, I figured that, well, I should say we figured we'd give you an opportunity to just talk about some of the things that you're doing there. I mean, PTR has never excuse me, PIR, has never had a CTO before. So, I mean, maybe do you want to talk about the new role? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the middle initial doesn't actually matter. It's a star. So anything, <laughs> anything R will do. Um, so, yeah, this, you're correct. Until um, early last year, there hadn't been a CTO role at, at PIR. And as I said, Affiliates and PIR have always been close partners. Affiliates provides the technical back-end registry services for PIR and had done for a long time. And um, and Affiliates obviously do a very good job at technical policy and uh, participation in the various standards bodies that, that make sense for DNS and for TLDs. But uh, the board of PIR and the executive team thought it was a good idea for PIR to take on some of that role. And so they decided to enlarge the department. And here I am. So uh, we now have a, a technical voice ourselves if, in the, you know, when we speak outside as as uh, in, in combination with the internal voices that we've always had. And um, so Susanna Wolf and I, uh, Susanna obviously is also a very familiar name. You, we, we now walk around these various meetings that we habitually attend wearing a PIR name tag, um, doing much the same things, but um, also now being ambassadors for .org. So now we get the opportunity to to participate with with the infrastructure and the data and everything else that comes with operating a legacy TLD. So what sort of things are you doing? Well, for actually, let me back up. So when did you start? Uh, February, March last year. So it's been about okay. a year. Oh, did time yeah. time flies to use the right. cliche. Yeah. It didn't seem like it was that long. So and we are having so, so much fun. In your, so first, in your first year, what have you done, Joe? Well, <laughs> we've done quite a lot, actually. I mean, I started writing this stuff down the other day um, for a different reason, and I ran out of paper. Uh, I wasn't actually using paper. That's a metaphor. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, we've been to all kinds of places. We talked to all kinds of people. And the, I think the best the best kinds of projects we've been involved in so far, which, you know, which gelled the closest with the kind of stuff I've done before, are uh, the public-facing 
infrastructure projects. And in particular, we we have two of them that are really sort of coming to a head now. One of them is the refresh of DNSSEC on .org. And, uh, and the other one is really expanding the the sort of the anti-abuse leadership that .org has, has been building for a while from the sort of legal and operational sense um, with an attempt to look at that from a data perspective. So what can we do with external researchers with the security industry with the data that we have from running the registry? So it's early days yet, but these are, are both, I think, quite exciting. They're both opportunities to, you know, to provide some demonstrable leadership or to at least uh, uh, be very transparent and uh, educate our ourselves and the rest of the community by our experiences as we go but they're good big projects so uh i'm looking forward to really sort of getting stuck into those yeah tell us about dnssec i guess why don't we take them in the order you you mentioned so when we were talking about rolling the root zone ksk uh, and everybody was predicting that the sky would fall um, i was fond of pointing to the dot org uh ksk set or key set i should say because it's so massive mm. and i said if if it works for .org, and it must be working for .org, or we would be here hearing people complain about it, it it's going to be okay if the root KSK, root key set gets a little bigger. So uh, is that going to change? I mean, I, I, I didn't look before we started recording, but as I recall, it's a it's like 3K or something like that. It's a huge, the DS key set for .org is, is huge, and there's a whole bunch of keys in there. Yeah, it, it is quite big. I mean, um, around the time that .org was signed, which was, I think, 2009 or so, um, the two things that made that a challenge were the frequency with which the TLD zone was updated, which I think at various times was as fast as eight every eight seconds or so. Um, wow. And the size of the zone. It wasn't as quite as big as it is today, but it was still a sizable zone. So, you know, the challenge of trying to sign incremental updates and send them globally um, is a not insignificant one. And remember, this was 2009. So the number of sort of production signer platforms that we had that were really proven in, in that sort of scale we're few and far between. So we are still using the same platform now as we used back then with largely the same configuration, managed with the same policy. Um, and what was cutting edge in 2009 is not exactly cutting edge in 2020. So we have some updates to make. But one of those updates is that one of the things we're considering is an algorithm role. And uh, the size of the DNS key mm. set is, is certainly one of the reasons to look at that. And the other one is that we're still using, we're using an algorithm, we're using algorithm seven right now with SHA-1. And SHA-1 is no longer everybody's favorite hash algorithm. So um, it's, you know, it's time to, to change for that reason too. So we are looking at a couple of options. I mean, we looked at um, algorithm 8, which is really just replaces SHA-1 with SHA-256. Mm -hmm. And algorithm 13, which is, uh, is based on ECDSA uh, P256 and has the very attractive uh, quality that the sizes of the signatures and the keys, of course, are very small because you're really just talking about coordinates around an ellipse. And your, your, your strength does not no longer sort of correlates directly to the size of either of those things. So um, that's what we're looking at right now. So you'd be the first major TLD, or actually, prob would you be the first TLD to, to roll to uh, an elliptical curve algorithm? Well, there have been some very some, some substantial developed TLDs that have done the roll to algorithm 13. Um, I think they're all CCTLDs. We might be the first legacy GTLD, I think, to do such a role. I'm not entirely sure because I can't remember what happened with EDU or Gov. But in any case, I mean, we're not doing it to be first. Um, but we, are, we do think that <laughs> um, by doing it with a, with a large zone that's, that's widely used, we can perhaps 
find out some things that other people didn't have to find out. One of the nice things about CCTLDs is, uh, particularly on in, in countries where they have well-developed operator communities, you know everybody who runs a validator. You can contact them, you can call them up. And we don't really have that sort of um, ability with .org. We know there's a dozen or so resolver clusters in the world that constitute a lot of our traffic, but there's a really, really long tail. You know, and that long tail adds up. So I think it's a slightly different scale of problem. So we're looking forward to really engaging with the community on this. Uh, we've done a couple of little presentations just letting people know that we're, we're working on it, we're thinking about it. Um, the algorithm role is one of the things we're thinking about. Uh, we're also looking at possibly a transition from NSEC 3 to NSEC, which will be interesting. I think that might be the oh, first wow. one that's been done in a TLD. Um, yeah. And, but nothing's, nothing's certain yet, and we're working with Affiliates to find out what they can handle, uh, and we're working with the, the wider community to find out what researchers are interested in looking and what concerns resolver operators might have. Joe, have you, have you guys uh, got some idea, if you were to choose... Uh, ECDSA as an algorithm, have you got some idea of what effect that would have on the size of your um, of the key set? Um, I haven't looked, to be honest. I mean, I know it'll be smaller. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. I just wondered how much. <laughs> no, it's interesting. That's a good thing to look at because in terms of response size, obviously, if we can get below one of the magic thresholds, then um, that, that'd be a useful thing to do. Although, you know, as, as Matt pointed out, the size of the current DNS key RR set doesn't seem to actually cause anybody any problems. It reminds me of this weird paper that came out in the 90s where someone, some expert in thermodynamics did the analysis and worked out that bees can't fly. Because from a thermodynamic <laughs> point of view, it's right. actually just not possible. Like energy out doesn't equal, it was less, it's greater than energy in or something like that. So therefore it can't work. Um, but it does work. So you have to work out why, I suppose. But yeah, um, yeah. So it'd be nice to work out why, why org works, I suppose, from a sort of philosophical point of view. I'm mainly just happy that it does. Um, but I'm more interested, I suppose, that it continues to work. And uh, algorithm thirteen might be a good way of doing it. I think NSEC to NSEC three to NSEC is is going to be interesting in a couple of dimensions. Um, if we go ahead with that, we might do it in two two different transitions rather than combining the two changes together. Um, I mean, having the transition would have the advantage that NSEC's a lot easier to debug than NSEC three. It's a lot easier to understand. Mm -hmm. um, it also would give us more coverage of the zone because at the moment most of the zone is just a collection of opt out sections. So you get mm -hmm. an answer from one of those opt out sections. You don't get you know, you don't get this ability to do aggressive NSEC caching and, and that kind of thing. So what we might end up doing with NSEC <clears throat> is making the zone a bit simpler and increasing the ability for resolvers to to cache NX domains in, in chunks. Um, but of course, the cost of that is that the zone becomes substantially bigger because 10 million delegations means we then need 10 million NSECs, each of which have 10 million or one RSIG, an extra 10 million RSIGs. So it's 20 million extra records in the zone which means we have a slightly different you know, zone distribution problem. So we're working through the issues and trying to model them. But those are the two things we're looking at. And I should add, I checked while you were talking, the DNS key response for .org is 1625 bytes, not 3K. So okay. everyone who was writing their email can, can <laughs> cancel that. It's more, than 50, send. it's more than 1,500. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, and then tell us the other thing you, you mentioned was working more closely with the security community about anti-abuse. <clears throat> yeah, so I was in San Diego last week and um, CADA put on a three-day workshop, second workshop they've done like this. And um, and their, their workshop is called Ames Kismet. And um, I might have to come back to you on what that exactly means. 
Oh, active, here we go, I found it. Active internet measurements, knowledge of internet structure, measurement, epistemology, and technology. So there's a there's an acronym that was uh, clearly not chosen for the words. <laughs> and um, this was a three-day workshop that Kada put on. It's the second one they've done, the first one I've been to. And I found it to be really, really good. The They're working towards an open knowledge network on the DNS and really just trying to explore what kinds of things they could do if they bring people together. And we had a day basically filled with security researchers all coming up with the most outlandish, complicated ways possible of trying to find out data around the DNS in order to try and deal with abuse. Um, and so many of these things would be so much easier if they were just, they just had a registry operator as a partner who was able to share data, then they wouldn't have to, you know, mine who is from a thousand different EC2 instances or all the other crazy things they have to do to try and actually get mappings of one thing to another thing. So I think there's an opportunity. It's very early days, but I think there's a there's an opportunity there to to actually sort of you know try this out, try and give more granular data from a registry towards people who are actually trying to research abuse, and see if we can actually get closer. And this, I mean, it's always going to be an arms race, but I think there's there are characteristics that are currently invisible in the registry to the outside that could be relevant. One of the things that came up. Um, at the moment, people take daily snapshots of the TLD zone and use that to infer domains that have been added or dropped. And right. you know, there are some heuristics that are useful from this, like a domain that's only recently been registered is, is often not safe to use because there are some forms of abuse for which very short-lived domains are the ones you use. In particular, you try and, I guess, use the domain up until the point where the, the stolen credit card is charged back, in which case the domain goes away. So if you can avoid dealing with domains that are new, <coughs> um, there's an advantage. So that's a heuristic, but that's a really, really a sort of a coarse measurement, taking daily snapshots and looking at what's changed. So imagine what you could do if you had access to the full registry log, where basically every EPP transaction that updates or changes a domain name could be could contribute towards a, a set of predictors, which you could then use to build a model. You could actually get some machine learning involved in this stuff and actually produce predictors to try and predict what domains are going to be used for. You could combine that with DNS data from passive DNS. There's all kinds of stuff you could do. And I think, um, you know, there's lots of people hungry for this sort of stuff. And I think it'd be nice if we could, we could join in and see if we can find some models here that actually make things better. Now, that sounds really interesting. We have a a whole team of threat analysts up in Tacoma, and they work with that kind of stuff all the time, taking those snapshots, you know, finding what what uh, I guess have, have have become to come to be known as newly observed domains, and looking for commonalities between, uh, you know, the structure of of domains, the you know the name servers that people are reusing, and things like that to infer uh, the maliciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be really interesting. And I think it's not just abuse. I mean, I think there are other patterns here that we could look at. <clears throat> I think there's a, you know, when you when you talk to people who are involved in the industry, um, particularly on the sort of web design marketing side, you know, there's a pattern here when it, when it comes to actually launching a new service, you register 30 domains, you have a marketing meeting, you decide, you narrow it down to 10, those 10 get renewed for another year. And then at some point, you know, you, you have some other sort of change. There's a pattern here that I bet is reproducible and I bet we could find. And if we can start to categorize domain names as being part of that design process, then we know they're not being used for nefarious purposes. We cut down the scale of the problem every time we do that. And you never know, there might be business reasons to be able to mm -hmm. give incentives to people who are using the domains for, for reasons that we think are good and, you know, and the opposite for people who are using them for reasons that are abusive. So it's, it all boils down to better understanding the data. And I think there are advantages here for us as a registry operator 
you know, and by extension, any other registry operator who is interested in what we do, if we can publish it. And, um, and also for all the myriad threat intelligence organizations who, who could really use this extra data stream and make their, make their threat intelligence better. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, Joe, um, is, is PIR and .org, I mean, were, were you one of relatively few, uh, TLDs to participate or were there, was there pretty, pretty wide representation of uh, TLDs in the, the meeting? We were the only TLD at this particular meeting. I'm not sure who was there in the previous one. I mean, there are other TLDs who spend a lot of time participating in research. I'm not suggesting we're the only one. Um, and to be honest, we're, we're new at this and other people have been doing this for a long time. And SIDN is a good example with .nl. Uh, they have all kinds of links with research and academia oh, yeah. and they do all kinds of work regularly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we are, we are by no means early to this party, but I think, you know, as far as the GTLD operator goes, where we, we have perhaps a sort of a broader scope, and we're in a collection of people who generally don't share this kind of data because it's generally considered to be, you know, have a blanket commercial sensitivity. I think it'd be nice to be able to expose some of this stuff and say, well, actually, you can do this stuff um, without actually hurting your commercial viability as a product. Um, and you can actually make the world better and perhaps make your business better too. Great. Yeah, it's yeah, fun stuff. Great. Mm. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about at what you're doing at PIR? Or well, I'm not going to Cancun. The day job. <laughs> <laughs> not going to Cancun is next on my agenda. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, it's early days building all this sort of stuff. We're building out a data analytics department. We're building out a data infrastructure. So there's a little lag involved in trying to get the stuff ready because it's difficult to build the stuff overnight. But we have a great collection of people, and um, you know we've got lots of work to do, so we're having a good time. Cool. Well, thanks yeah. for the update. And uh, I know what you talked about bears a striking similarity to the presentation proposal you made for the ICANN DNS Symposium in uh, May in Paris. So uh, this might be a preview of that. I have I have a feeling. And, oh, I think uh, so. I mean, uh, Suzanne did a presentation at the OAC meeting in San Francisco, where she, in two slides, outlined the kind of things that I've been talking about. I mean, I, I hope by the time Paris rolls around, first of all, we hope Paris happens. <laughs> we don't all get Corona cancelled. Um, but we, we hope by that point that we'll have a better idea of the practical timelines that we're talking about by uh, by working with affiliates and working out what can happen with the infrastructure. Um, and we'll know the kinds of trade-offs we're talking about in terms of what we do first. So hopefully by the time Paris comes around, we should have a, a more detailed set of information to share and we'll get some you know more detailed feedback. Cool. Well, this would be the point where we would look in the mailbag, but alas, it has been so long since our last recording that the mailbag is well and truly empty. So rather mm. than uh, make up a question, Cricket and I, in a rare moment of uh, pre-recording preparation, thought, well, what could we talk about? And yeah, rare and brief. <laughs> very brief. And well, Cricket, it was your idea. You wanna you wanna mention it? Yeah, and actually some of what Joe talked about touches on this a little bit because uh, Joe was talking specifically about um, an algorithm role to move to an elliptic curve algorithm, which would reduce the the size of the uh, the key set that's being returned. And one of the things that's coming up sometime this year, I guess, if uh, if the the name of the event is still correct, is DNS Flag Day 2020. Um, some of you may remember that we had a DNS Flag Day. I think it was February 1st of 2019, right? So just a little over a year ago. And that 
DNS Flag Day was really about um, uh, preparing folks for the removal of various workarounds um, that we'd, we'd had to add to recursive DNS servers to deal with ill-behaving authoritative DNS servers that didn't know what the heck a uh, EDNS zero option was and would uh, respond in a non-standard way to them. Um, and now we have a new one coming coming up and maybe we can talk about that because I think it'll have some interesting implications for um, for for folks like PIR and .org and it'll have interesting implications for people who operate recursive DNS servers. Yeah, so Flag Day 2020, it's all about packet size. It's about right. trying and, to and uh, uh, and avoiding fragmentation. Avoiding fragmentation. What? Well, right. About packet size to avoid fragmentation. So, so the idea is exactly. that um, the Flag Day 2020 folks want the default of DNS implementations to not advertise an eDNS zero buffer size that would be so large as to induce fragmentation under the most usual conditions. And so they decided That's to start right. with the IPv6 minimum MTU, which is 1280 octets. And so if you back away and leave room for um, the various headers, you wind up with 1,232 octets of usable space for something like a DNS message. So the idea then is that you would, would not advertise a EDNS buffer size larger than 1,232. So that's, that's sort of the first part of the flag day. And then the second part yeah. is uh, to um, just is, hit home something that's something? been a requirement oh, all along, but that uh, uh, but that uh, overzealous firewall <laughs> administrators uh, and, and and other well-meaning but misguided implementers mess up, which is DNS has to work over TCP. Right, right. Because just as a reminder, um, if for whatever reason the the responding name server can't fit everything that it wants to into um, a single UDP-based DNS message. It has the option, it doesn't have to, but it has the option of setting the truncation bit and uh, and sending a response to the querier. And then the querier is uh, at its, again, I think at its option, right? Can retransmit over TCP to be able to get a larger DNS message. Right, and I know at least some implementations, I don't wanna, you know, I've lost track of which versions do what and they change all the time, but I know at least some, for example, set uh, buffer size of 4096. So there mm -hmm. could very well be many authoritative servers that see that then and, and respond with huge big uh, responses that maybe get silently fragmented and, and lost. And so now if more resolvers are advertising lower uh, buffer sizes, there could be more UDP messages that can't get sent, or I should say DNS messages that can't get sent in UDP. So therefore TC does get set so there could be more resolvers that are trying to do retries over TCP. I mean, in, in the future, if this default comes to pass. Well, there's, there's also the chance that there'll be more requeries over UDP. Because in the, yeah. in the case where you have a smaller buffer size to be able to pad the additional section, you know, you send a reduced additional section or an empty additional section, which leaves the client then having to look up extra stuff that otherwise they would have got in the first response. So that's true. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I suppose we also have to look ahead and say that, you know, um, there are T UDP and TCP are unlikely to be the last transports we ever see with DNS. And perhaps Quick will be the next one, if not to mention, if we can mention HTTPS without, you know, running away um, <laughs> for fear of controversy and pitchforks. 
It it might be worth yes, um, explaining to folks what the what the danger of of fragmentation is because you know I remember uh, having to read a couple of a couple of uh, the documents that were cited on the DNS Fly Day twenty twenty site to actually understand. I mean, uh, certainly operationally, I understood that if you do fragment, sometimes the fragments don't always arrive. So there is that possibility, which is which is a real operational concern, right? You you fragment the response, not all of the fragments arrive. And the poor querier just has to has to requery, but there's also a security concern, um, the possibility that somebody can maybe maybe uh, uh, piggyback on on uh, the fragmented uh, the original fragmented response and you know add later fragments. Um, apparently, that that's not all that secure. Do you guys know any more about it than that? I'm well, no this... expert. I just read the doc. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think as well. I mean, I, I've. I'm also no expert, but I think you know we know that there's a different fragmentation model in v four versus version six. And I mean, for a long mm -hmm. time, I remember when we ran L root before, and I imagine they still have the same config now. we We used to do this kind of buffer restriction on the outbound anyway, because uh, if we sent a packet out, a response that was too large that was going to be fragmented at some point, the v six model is you don't fragment on the fly. You don't fragment at the router where you where the constriction is present. You signal back. A bit like path MTU discovery with TCP on uh, IPv4, and you signal back to the source, and you say, "No, that was too big. You should send smaller." And of course, on a DNS server, if you receive a message like that, you say, "We'll send what?" <laughs> I don't remember what I sent. <laughs> there's no state retained, so there's no ability to resend. So, in a way, a stateless service like DNS and fragmentation and v6 is a horrible combination. It almost guarantees that anything that's too big, any 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 constriction in the path, is going to cause responses to be lost. And of course, Jeff Houston of APNIC has been talking about this for years, trying to get everyone to listen. I think he, he has a particularly dim view of how this is ever going to work at all. It is. It does make you wonder, I think. I mean, it, it makes you wonder how it took so long for people to realize that a stateless service actually can't possibly work with fragment, fragmentation. I mean, it seems odd that we had so much stuff deployed on the internet and so much stuff seemed to carry on working, perhaps by virtue of the fact that dual stack exists, you know, in the DNS, we always have V4 addresses and somewhere in the NS set. So, you know, it's perhaps harder to notice when V6 doesn't work, but how did it possibly take so long for us to notice that this can't possibly work? <laughs> well, I think it's just that. It, I think I think you absolutely are right about the dual stack part, that as, as long as it works, even if it maybe works a little more slowly because there's V6 queries and responses that are failing, and so you eventually have to hit a V4 uh, path, but eventually, if it does work, you know who's gonna who's gonna troubleshoot that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm just looking at the website while you guys are are talking, but I, I still don't think they've they've settled on a date for DNS Fly Day 2020, have they? I hadn't I hadn't seen that when I did my hours and hours of research in preparation for this podcast. I did have a quick look you know, after, after you mentioned that this was a possible topic, and I had a look, and there is a note on there somewhere saying that they have yet to decide. So I guess it's still an open question. Yeah, but they have some time. I think that they, yeah, they have uh, on the the DNS Flag Day uh, website. They have a list of organizations that are are participating, if you will, in DNS Flag Day twenty twenty. Um, I know this because I got uh, buttonholed by by Jerry from uh, from OARC, uh, who wondered whether Infoblox would um, 
would participate. And I said, oh, sure. And he said, well, you know, if you're really going to participate, you really need to write some sort of a blog posting announcing that you're participating. Um, but if you're, if you're using open source software, if you're using um, a cloud-based DNS service, if you're using um, a commercial product like Infobloxes, you can look on dnsflagday.net and, and uh, see a list of, of folks who are participating, see if your software or your uh, service actually is, is going to participate. And for the record, Infoblox will. I think it's, it's interesting. I, I have heard it mentioned before, this open question of, is this going to do more harm than good? Because there is the suggestion that if there is a lot more fallback to TCP, perhaps the current infrastructure will struggle to handle it. And uh, I, I think that's interesting. I, I think the TCP infrastructure is a lot more robust than people realize. Mm -hmm. I remember when, when Org was first signed back in 2009, there was... I forget if it was a, a bug in the, I think it was a bug in the signer. It wasn't simply a configuration problem, but the SOA serial was being handled by the signer because obviously it has to increment every time a signature is regenerated. And the TTL on the SOA record was set to zero. Ooh. And the negative cache TTL, of course, is the minimum value of what used to be called the minimum in the SOAR data and the TTL on that record itself. So basically nothing was being cached. And, um, we had an awful lot of TCP connections suddenly. <laughs> there was some, I remember some graphs that was shared at ICANN meeting that followed that showed more or less nothing. It was like zero, zero, zero lots <laughs> on the graph <laughs> corresponding exactly to when the thing was signed. Um, yeah. But it turned out there was actually no reported problem. It was all fine. So I think, you know, another example where the DNS persists because it's far more robust than people give it credit for. But um, I think if anybody's concerned that this is going to cause a problem because of TCP, I, I don't see it. I think it's... Uh, I don't, I don't see that at all. I, th I think people have yeah. been setting. On the other TTLs hand, maybe if you were doing, say, TLS over TCP or HTTP over TLS over TCP. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, if you can get a stream, then you can do anything because you you leave all those that sort of tedious business about packet size to the underlying protocols. But if you're doing it yourself because you're sending UDP, I you know I, I think people have been doing this for a long time. I meant root servers have been doing it with V6. I'm, I'm quite sure people are doing other things. I, I don't see a problem. It is, it is going to be nice to not have fragmentation to worry about. Yep. Yes, the glorious post-Flag Day 2020 future. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I believe we've arrived at the witty banter about pop culture topics section of the episode. Yes. Yes, we have. Um, and last time, I think we talked about the Mandalorian, so we've already covered that. Um, well, now we can talk about Picard. Yes, we can. We can. Have you been watching it? Uh, actually, I watched <laughs> only a the I'll first I thought for a second that was a question. And then me. I thought, I, oh, I should really it. run back. Yeah. I, then I ran back and I watched my favorite um, TNG episodes just to, as a refresher because I thought, gosh, you know, it's been such a long time since I since I watched The Next Generation. And I watched, oh boy, I mean, all, all these episodes that, that you would probably know, like um, Darmok, of course, because you have to watch Darmok. Um, you remember the, that one, Matt? I do. The, yeah, that was, an, that was an early one, the, the alien who spoke only in metaphor, which is sort of ridiculous i don't know how you'd ever communicate how, yeah, exactly. you, you, you need the words in the first place to construct the metaphor but never mind yeah yeah um that one uh yesterday's yesterday's enterprise which of course is sensational um the best of both worlds the cliffhanger uh yes yes um gosh what else was there oh there were so there's many the spot cliffhanger right wasn't that a cliffhanger yeah, there's across a, a, the, a season break 
I, it probably was. I don't think I watched that one. Um, the first one that I watched, I think it was the first one that I watched, is uh, The Inner Light. Do you remember that one? That's the one where... That one was fantastic. The one where he like amazing. lives the whole alternate life in a few minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That one really... That's a, a, a kind of a tearjerker, yeah. honestly. <laughs> Star Trek made me cry. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was uh, a lot of fun to go back and, and watch all of these old episodes. There was also, um, what was there? I Borg. Remember the one where they capture the, the wounded, the young wounded Borg down on the planet and they call yeah. him Hugh. Well, have you watched Picard? Have you watched all the episodes? No, I, I you I've need only watched you, the first one. You need to keep watching. <laughs> I can't Does Hugh come back. I, how, how could I possibly <laughs> say, but after I've said this, how could you possibly not know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, okay. Then I will definitely have to do that because I did finally get off my, my ass and I kicked uh, my cable TV provider to the curb and I'm entirely over the top now. So um, uh, what is it? YouTube TV plus um, Netflix plus Amazon prime plus um, a bundle of Hulu and Disney plus and yeah. And it's still half as much as I was paying for cable TV. Oh really? Wow. Or less than half probably. No, I'm being $10 a month to death by very many things. I really need to audit and cut some things out. Yeah. Yeah. I should do that at some point too. But, but I mean, you know, you cancel a, a, a cable TV service that's costing you as much as that one was. It, it pays for a lot of $10 a month services. <laughs> but Joe, do you live in the land of cheap internet up there in Canada? Uh, well, we have internet that is that it exists. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know things, <laughs> things to do with infrastructure and mobile and, and internet. I don't know. I'd call them cheap, but they're certainly adequate. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not familiar with all these various television things you talk about. I'm far too busy, you know, worrying about DNSSEC and having fun with PIR at <laughs> <to> watch television. <laughs> Well, you clearly have at least one hobby that we can see in back of you, Joe. Although our, our listeners can't, but but uh, there are, there are quite a number of uh, guitars, and it looks like uh, the one in the middle is that a bass? Yeah, it is. Yep, yep. Yeah. Years ago, I used to play these things, you know, incompetently, but I had fun. <laughs> and you know, you get to a certain age, and you realize that when you walk into a guitar store, you can actually buy things, and so you do. But then you also realize that you no longer really have time to be able to do anything. So they, they do hang on the wall and I, I take them down very occasionally, but uh, not as often as I should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I w- it, it, the other, I think the other thing that Matt and I have already talked about fairly recently, but, but not on the podcast was that we, I think we both finished the, the latest Gibson novel, right? Yes. Agency. Uh, agency. Yeah, I liked it, and I yeah, which I thought was fantastic. I, I I really enjoyed it. I, I, yeah, and I went that. back and read the. What's that, Joe? I was saying I haven't read that one yet, so no spoilers. Okay. Okay. Well, have you read the peripheral, the the first one from a couple years ago? Maybe I've missed that one too. I don't know. Actually, it's longer than a couple years ago. I think. Um, yeah, it was a while ago. Oh, really. It's uh, it's long enough ago that I that I reread it. I was telling Cricket, and uh, I mean, I, I'm at an age now where uh, I can reread stuff, and I remember the main bits, but uh, some of the subtle plot twists and things I may not remember, and it's just as enjoyable to read stuff again. 
It's actually probably time to read uh, Cryptonomicon again. I I actually, that's a book Mm, that I mm -hmm, I like so much. mm -hmm. I reread about every 10 years. I went back and read the Sprawl trilogy um, not so long ago. Yeah, that was a great book. Which is fantastic. And it will always be fantastic. But it's it's Mm. funny, every time you read it, and every decade that passes and you read it again, it's more true. So I don't know what's happened. Either William Gibson's a time traveler or the internet is just being engineered in his image. One of those or both. I don't know. You read anything uh, good recently, Joe? Uh, recently, no. The, tr- the trouble with traveling so much I've discovered is you get on the plane with the book with the full intention of reading it and then you fall asleep. And um, and it turns out that that's such a good thing as far as air travel is concerned, you don't try and fix it. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I need to I need to make more time. This this virus that we now have to deal with in our travel schedules is probably going to give me more time to read. So that's probably a bonus. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've had all travel summarily canceled through March for sure. Mm. And beyond that is doubtful at this point. Or I, I shouldn't say doubtful, uncertain. What about you, Cricket? Is Infoblox, do they have any, any policies about travel suspension? No, not yet. And I, I do have some domestic travel, actually some continental travel. Um, scheduled. So I think in, on Monday I'm headed for Denver. Not too long after that, I'm headed for Houston and then I'll be up in uh, Toronto and Ottawa. But um, the next international travel I was looking at was the the events in Paris. And I'm, <laughs> per, per your advice, Matt, I haven't, I haven't booked anything. Yeah. I, I don't know any, don't have any inside information to impart other than, uh, you know, look at what happened to Cancun. And so I, I right. think it'd be advisable to, if you haven't bought tickets to, to wait till we see what's going on for sure. Yeah. I think, I don't know if I told you this, uh, but I was haunting, uh, 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 Facebook group for, you know, United 1k and global services members recently, uh, you know, just looking around and somebody had, somebody posted that their partner had just taken, um, an SFO type a flight and there were two people in business class, one of them being his partner. <laughs> so the airlines must really be suffering. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder what companies, well, like Apple in particular, I know Apple sent like dozens of people every day back and forth to China. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what what are they doing? How, how do they continue to do business? Are they just doing Zoom or are they chartering private planes? Because, uh, you know, airline, U.S. airlines are not flying to China anymore, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. Well, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If only if only people didn't have such a taste for pangolin, as my friend Tom said. <laughs> well, is that an honest day's episode? Well, at least you now have a, uh, think a, so. byline, a byline for it, for the pangolin reference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the first it's the first Asmister GNS episode in which we've discussed pangolin. <laughs> but not the last. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's respectable. Shall I uh, shall I wrap it up in a bow? Sure. All right. Well, as always, thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. We are in dire need <laughs> of uh, of new questions. So if you have a, a DNS questions, please uh, a DNS question, please send it to us at uh, Mr. DNS MRDNS at ask dash Mr. DNS dot com. And uh, we would love to hear from you. We'll try to get to it uh, as soon as we can. We're also hoping we're trying uh, a new 
recording technology, and we're hoping this minimizes the amount of post-production work. <laughs> Not that we did much, but um, <laughs> it minimizes the amount of post-production work that we have to do, and we'll get this thing up uh, as quickly as possible and hopefully record another one uh, very, very soon. So uh, thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time. And thanks very much uh, to our special guest, Joe Hadley. Right, very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks, Joe. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye -bye.